Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and Jerry, too. Well, i got to mention Jerry. And this is Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> I'm surprised you uh, picked this topic. Why? I'm just, I don't recognize you as a baseball guy. Oh, man. Probably the, f- the, the first... Thing I was ever truly into was baseball cards. Like getting the newest edition of like the Beckett's price guide was like one of my, like the highlights of my month whenever. Really? Yeah, for a few years I was super into baseball cards. What's funny is like I would still, I'd watch baseball here or there, but it was baseball cards in particular I really cared about. But yeah. Oh, so you didn't really watch baseball? No, not really. Interesting. But I really loved baseball cards. Like, I wasn't like, oh, hmm. I hate baseball, but I love baseball cards. It wasn't like complicating, complex like that. It was just, I didn't sure. watch. I, I liked baseball cards, cards more than I liked baseball itself. That's all. I got you. Were you a Roberto Clemente fan? Well, I mean, he was, uh, he was playing his final years when I was being born, so... Mm-hmm. I was not a fan, but I I grew up uh, obviously a Braves fan. But the in the mid nineteen seventies, when I first started being a baseball fan, mm-hmm. the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, had a couple of really good teams, and he was um, he was not long gone before those years. So right. his aura was still sort of ever present when I first started watching baseball in the Pirates when they had those great awful. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Stovetop flat caps. Oh, I love those things. But yeah, on their own, just as an article of fashion, they're horrid. But they were so unique and different too, you know. Yeah, I mean they were they they rank among the worst uh, uniforms. But uh, all right, you know they're just very seventies. So yeah, they are super seventies, which I think is why I like I love them. The uh, the seventies. I mean, I think they were a throwback to the old old days. So that was the original. Oh, is that right? Version, but. Yeah, I don't think they, like, invented those caps. I think, like, some of the early baseball caps might have been flat like that. I might I be wrong, did, though. I did not know that. Um, I think the Astros had the best 70s uniform of all, though, far they, and away. They rank as one of the worst, too. <laughs> oh, you're crazy. You have terrible taste well, in the I, 70s. I'm, I'm just talking about if you look up articles like worst baseball uniforms ever, those are the ones that are listed. Okay, well, then you're not crazy, but whoever's writing those articles is crazy. Yeah, I assume you're talking about the orange uh, shooting star in stripes. Yeah, with like red and blue. It's very pretty. Okay. Okay, so anyway, we're not talking about fashion or uniforms or anything like that, although this is not at all surprising that we even started on this. We're talking about one particular player who wore that funny-looking pirate's hat, Roberto Clemente, who was He actually never wore that hat, so... (laughs) Well then, what are we even that, doing? That here? came along. That came along after him. What's the point of even doing this episode then? If he never hey, wore man, that hat, I'm just I'm just trying to get keep Pittsburgh people from emailing us. In no, anger. I appreciate that, Chuck. I appreciate it. Um, so we we are talking about a Pittsburgh pirate, Roberto Clemente, and I knew like I knew of him. I was aware of him. I know that he's one of the all time greats. I hadn't seen many plays of his, but um, like you can't. 
you can't be into baseball and not know about Roberto Clemente, but I definitely didn't know nearly as much about him as I do now, um, thanks to this uh, help from Ruse, who apparently was raised a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, so he had plenty of good things oh, yeah? to say about Roberto Clemente. Yeah, I think maybe we should tick off a few of these career stats just to give you an idea of who we're talking about here. Uh-huh. Uh, lifetime batting average of three seventeen, which uh, if you if you don't know anything about baseball and you think a success rate of 30% is terrible, it is in almost everything else in life. <laughs> but in baseball, that means you're a Hall of Famer. That's yeah. how hard it is to hit a baseball. Right. I was going to say it really goes to show how difficult hitting baseballs in the major leagues are, you know? Yeah, you hit three out of ten, and you're great. Uh, I think I've said that before on the show. But he got 12 gold gloves in the right field, uh, led the league in, in batting, the National League, that is, four different times, mm-hmm. uh, two World Series championships, uh, MVP 1966, MVP of the World Series in 71, where he batted 414, which is just crazy good. Uh, I think 16-time All-Star. Just uh, really just an amazing career um, and obviously instant Hall of Fame career. Yeah, and he was really well known for his arm. Like, he would throw people out at home from right field. From the outfield, he could throw without a bounce. He could throw all the way in and beat a runner to third or to home, which is just amazing. And it was one of the things that really got people excited about him and watching him play. But, like, if you look at just his stats, especially taken individually, like he was a great player and, and one of the all-time greats, but statistically speaking, it doesn't necessarily show up. Like there's plenty of people who have better stats, but one of the things that made Roberto Clemente such an amazing baseball player is he was one of the true, what are called complete players or a five-tool player where he could run, he could throw, he could bat, he could field, and like I keep, I keep forgetting what the fifth one is. But he could, he it's, could like it, sell <laughs> Cracker Jacks in the stand, like nobody's business as well. You got an actual baseball guy on the other end of the call here, you know? Who? Me. Oh, okay. Well, Mister Baseball Guy, if it's not selling Cracker Jacks, what's the fifth tool? Use me at your disposal. It's uh, hit for power and hit for average. So there's two hittings. That's the oh. Well, whoever knows that? Nobody knows that. You can't just use the same thing twice and call it five tools. (laughs) Well, no, you can because a lot of players can have a big boomstick, but they bat like 230. But if you can hit for average and hit for power, that's a big, big deal. And if you can make the most exciting play in baseball to me, which is a right field to third base assist, Mm -hmm. then – I mean, there's nothing more thrilling to me. It's really than amazing that throw. to see, for sure. It definitely more is. more than even home plate for some reason. Probably because it's further. One of the other things that I think people loved about Roberto Clemente, and I think that made him such a true baseball player in a lot of people's eyes, at least in mine. But he was very well known for going after pitches that other people would have taken as a ball. Clear balls, well high and outside, high and inside, low and whatever. And he would go after them, and he would hit them a lot of the time, which is one reason why his batting average was so high, because he would go after those pitches that other people um, would just let go by. And then in hitting them, he would send them into places where you wouldn't expect uh, him, being a right-handed batter, to hit. So he could get to base pretty pretty um, frequently, too. He also was a fast runner, but he ran like he was out of his mind completely. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun to see him uh, run. <laughs> he would hit pitch outs, 
which if you, uh, like I said, if you don't know baseball, a pitch out is when uh, there's somebody on first base and the catcher signals to the pitcher right uh, before they throw that the, the guy on first is going to steal second. So they throw it completely out of the strike zone oh, right, such that yeah. the catcher can stand up and catch it to make the throw to second, and that's yeah. called a pitch out. It's not it's not even a real pitch. And he would swing and hit pitch outs, which is <laughs> – That's awesome. No one does that. It's unheard of. It's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. So <clears throat> suffice to say that Roberto Clemente is one of the great baseball players of all time because he had it all. But he was also, it turns out, a really great human being in a lot of ways too. He was an activist for civil rights – during the civil rights era. Um, and he was also a humanitarian, as we'll see. Like, he really cared about other people and especially the plight of people who uh, were less fortunate than him because he had came from less fortunate circumstances to begin with, and he never forgot it. Like, he was genuinely one of those guys who never let his fame get to his head. And the ways that he let his fame get to his head was in, say, animosity toward the sporting press or, or saying, like, you guys aren't giving me enough credit for being what a great player I am. That was separate. That was different. When it came to people outside of baseball, just everyday people, he was he was friends with those people throughout his whole career and life. Yes, and that is why Major League Baseball uh, has honored him with the Roberto Clemente Award every year, which is given to uh, the player that they feel best represents the humanitarian and uh, humanitarian and philanthropic side of the game, uh, or outside the game, rather. So right. quite, a, quite an honor to have an award named after you. So I think we should take a break and then maybe go back to the beginning uh, where and when he was born right after this. Alrighty, so Clemente uh, was born in Puerto Rico. He's born in a little town called Carolina, or Carolina, yeah. and it was sugarcane territory, sugarcane plantations. And uh, his dad, he was actually born Roberto Clemente Walker. Uh, his mother's maiden name was Walker, and uh, his father's name was Clemente. So he used both mm -hmm. until he got into baseball. And he was born in the middle of the Great Depression, uh, the youngest of seven kids. Very tough way to be born into life. It was, but I mean, like, if you're, you know, if you come from a farming family, it makes sense, you know? Oh, to have a lot of kids? Yeah. Sure. And plus, you have a lot of people to play with as you're growing up, too. That is very true. So, um, he, his father was actually a foreman on a sugarcane plantation, um, and his mom was uh, a huge influence in his life. I get the impression slightly more of an influence than his father was even. But one of the things that um, she had hoped for her son was that he would become, uh, he would study engineering. I'm not sure why, but she wanted him to become an engineer. And he said, yeah, but I really like playing baseball. Like to the point where he and his brothers and his friends would make baseballs out of whatever was handy. Like they would put like stones in a sock. They would wad up paper, tape, whatever they could get their hands on and use whatever they could for a bat and they would play baseball. And then as they got a little older and started to start playing in school, they had actual equipment to play with and they would just play constantly. I, I read he had 
10 home runs once in a game that started at 11 a.m. and ended after 6 because they just kept playing and playing and playing. Like, that's all he wanted to do was play baseball. And one of the reasons why is because he was really, really good at it from a very young age. Yeah, I think the um, – I have a theory about Caribbean players that they develop so well because uh, so many of them don't have the right gear growing up, and especially back then – because if you're out there with a broomstick and a bottle cap, imagine what that does for your hand-eye coordination yeah. to when you have, like, a real barrel of a baseball bat and a baseball. Mm-hmm. Like, n- it's no wonder that he could hit anything. If you're growing up hitting bottle caps, and this wasn't just him. So many uh, Dominican and Puerto Rican and Cuban um, and now just all over the place uh, in the Caribbean players are coming up. And they, uh, I think they make do with less as children, yeah, and that really uh, really hones their skills in ways that, um, and it, you know, there's a baseball problem in America. Period. Like that, far far fewer kids are growing up playing baseball now, and there's far fewer American baseball players now as a result. Hmm. So one other reason Chucky was super into baseball was because the whole island of Puerto Rico was into baseball at the time. Like it had been exported a couple decades before he was born from uh, Cuba to Puerto Rico. And then also by the time he was playing, um, the Puerto Rican um, baseball leagues had really developed into something substantial. And they played their season in the winter. So if you were an American ball player. Um, you could play in your off-season down in the Caribbean, specifically in Puerto Rico, among other places. But Puerto Rico was a really attractive place to play because they were so into it. There were so many teams and so many good players already down there. But one of the— It still is. Yeah. But one of the ways that it developed was from uh, especially Negro League players making their way down there in the off-season to play. Um, I believe Roberto Clemente actually played a season with uh, Willie Mays himself. And Willie Mays had just led the uh, the New York Giants to the to win the World Series, and a couple months later, he was down in Puerto Rico playing during the winter the winter leagues, because that's just what you did when you really wanted to play baseball. You go down to the Caribbean in the winter time. Yeah, it's something that still happens, and it's mainly what you see now is players, younger players, play winter ball in Puerto Rico to uh, just hone their skills and to get better. Uh-huh. It's not something you see a lot of veterans doing. Um, that's why it's pretty remarkable and I, I think shows the love of his country in the game yeah. that Clemente played winter ball like every year through his career. Yeah, one of the reasons I saw that he did that was because he knew that most of the people who lived in Puerto Rico wouldn't be able to afford to go up to the States to watch him play, and he wanted to for them to be able to see him play. So he played every year. Another thing, it was like you were saying, some of those younger players hone their skills um, down there. He kept his skills honed by playing winter ball. Like, he kept his swing loose, and he he, he didn't fall out of um, shape ever because he played baseball basically year-round for 18 or 20 years. Yeah, so by the time he hits 14, he's recruited to play um, softball, which is a little weird, but it was a competitive softball team, mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually an amateur baseball team, and was making, I think, like 40 bucks a week at 17, uh, playing amateur baseball in Puerto Rico. And this was, uh, you know, this was a time where you didn't have baseball scouts combing the Caribbean for the next new young talent. It was it was, it was a very new idea yeah. to go to the Caribbean to find players. And not a lot of teams 
I mean, most teams were doing it a little bit, but they didn't have the robust scouting programs down there like they do now. Right. And they sent uh, the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, who uh, very famously broke the color barrier um, with Jackie Robinson in 47, sent a scout uh, named Al Campanis, who went down to Puerto Rico, saw a 19-year-old Roberto Clemente in 1954 and said, this guy is a five-tool dynamo. And we need we need to get him up here as fast as we can. And it wasn't. I mean, that was actually kind of um, insightful of him because it wasn't readily obvious, especially very early in his career um, when he was playing with the uh, what are they called the Kangrejeros, the Crabbers, um, that he was just going to be one of the all time greats because he swung at lots of pitches that other people wouldn't have swung at. He ran like he was crazy. Um, he, he was still finding his his skills, but to, to be able to see how great he was going to be um, at that young stage, I mean, that's a, that's a credit to that, to what's his name, Campanis's um, eye for talent. Yeah. Yeah, and he went on to be a lifelong baseball executive, I think retired uh, in shame for some, like, uh, racial statements he made, but longtime baseball guy. Uh, but the Dodgers got Clemente, and there was a thing, uh, there was a rule back then from uh, 1947 to 1965 that uh, they got rid of uh, in 65 for very good reason. That was a little bit weird if you're a baseball fan today because it's so different now. But the rule was that if you were a, a player that was signed for more than $4,000 as a signing bonus, mm-hmm then you had to be on a Major League Baseball roster for two full seasons. Uh, And if you weren't, then you would become part of the rookie draft. And Clemente was signed for, I think, $10,000. And I'm not sure why they signed him for that much. Maybe he wouldn't have gone for less, but it was not a great move because this meant that the Dodgers had to either take him to the Major Leagues for two full seasons, which was not a good call because most players in baseball start out in the minor leagues. In fact, all do. No one makes that jump straight to the major leagues, even if it's just like a cursory half season or so. Mm-hmm. But that's even really rare. But they uh, they kept him in the minor leagues, and their plan was to hide him. And literally, it would he would go like two months between starts because they didn't want – they wanted to get those two seasons out of the way uh, because after those two years, you could send someone to the minor leagues. But it didn't work. Um, people saw him play, and even though he didn't get to play much, and the the Pittsburgh Pirates really homed in on him right away. So, yeah, the Pittsburgh Pirates were um, led, I think their GM was Branch Rickey, who was the guy who had scouted Jackie Robinson and got him onto the Dodgers. Now he worked for the Pirates. So he ended up getting his hands on Roberto Clemente and brought him to the Pirates. And so apparently when uh, they found out, or when uh, Clemente found out that he had been drafted by the Pirates, he was down in Puerto Rico, and he said later on that he had he didn't really know where Pittsburgh was. He, he had been excited to play for New York because there's a big Puerto Rican community in New York, and all of a sudden He's sent off to Pittsburgh, doesn't know where it is, and doesn't really know anybody. So this is kind of his his entree into um, America. But it actually was even rougher than that because first he started out, uh, I guess, on Pittsburgh's um, minor league team. Or in, that's what it was. It was in spring training down in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. Um, and he came face-to-face with the, the stark reality of, of basically Jim Crow South in um, the 50s 
first thing when he got to America. And he he was one of the reasons I said earlier he was a civil rights activist because he did not take very kindly to that and bristled and, and railed against it from the outset. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't have any. Uh, he didn't have any frame of reference for this. Like he came from Puerto Rico, where this wasn't a thing. He um, was of African descent, so to Americans, he was a black man. To him, he was Puerto Rican. Right. He was caught between two worlds and didn't understand why he had to stay in a different hotel or eat in a different restaurant than his white uh, teammates. And so this really upset him. And and what upset him even as much was how his other black teammates on the team understood it and just basically had to take it because they were afraid if they caused a ruckus that they would be sent back down to the minors. Mm. And he was just like, you shouldn't be deferential. Like, what is going on in this country? And he, he would speak to the sporting press about this stuff. And the sporting press either would just ignore his comments about that or... Actually, yes, they would ignore his comments about that, and they would just talk about whatever he said about the game. But then to kind of heap um, this sense that he was an outsider and an outsider that wasn't respected because he was looked down upon because of his race and his, his um, origin, um, they would quote him phonetically in the press. So when he said, you know, um, I th- he said there was a headline that famously said, like, I get a hit, I feel good. But they spelled it out like, I get heat. H-E-E-T is how they spelled hit. I feel good. That was a headline in the Pittsburgh newspapers after a really big game. And he found that extremely demeaning. Uh, And it actually really kind of framed the way that he felt about America. Um, Yeah, it framed how he felt about America. And don't forget, like Puerto Rico was... You know, by this time, it was an American territory. It had been for quite a while. So people in Puerto Rico had long considered themselves American. People in America didn't consider Puerto Ricans. Uh, they considered them ethnic. And they, the, Roberto Clemente was treated just like any other person from Puerto Rico, which was not very well back then. Yeah, so his reputation started to develop as a loner. as a very moody player. Uh, the Pirates were a really bad team. I don't think we mentioned that um, at the time. Just terrible, like one of the worst teams in baseball. He didn't catch on in his first few years there either. Uh, I think in his first five seasons, he only hit over 300 one time. And a lot of this was due to injury. Uh, he had a, a car accident that hurt his back, so his back was all jacked up for a while. Um, he had other you know, injuries along the way, and he would— he wasn't shy about talking about it. He would complain to the manager. He complained to the press mm-hmm. about his injuries. And this uh, baseball's still kind of this way, or, or most sports are actually. Is you kind of don't take that stuff public. You don't want to be seen as someone who um, either fakes injury because they don't want to play, or who just who complains about it too much. Right. So he, he didn't have the best reputation early on because of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I know. He was thought to be a complainer, a hypochondriac, moody, um, abrasive, uh, egotistical. And that was something that, like, that's indisputable is the egotistical part because he was he knew that he was playing better than he was getting credit for. And it ticked him off because he knew the reason he wasn't getting credit for it was because he didn't act the way that the white sporting press expected him to act. And they they 
didn't like him for it. So they didn't really give him any any credit. They actually withheld credit that was definitely due him for the way he was playing. But like you said, I mean, it took a few years for him to start to catch on. But even after he did, which first began in the 1960 World Series, uh, when the Pirates went from, I don't know if they went from worst to first, but it was pretty close to something like that. Um, he was he was passed over as the uh, World Series MVP. Um, I think like a, a lefty relief pitcher got more votes than he did, despite him being one of the clear heroes of that series. Um, and he really was not happy about that. And it really kind of created this this lifelong animosity with the sporting press that had already been brewing, but that one to him showed that they were basically working against him at that point. Yeah, and I think 1960 was a pretty bittersweet year because it was his breakout year. Mm -hmm. Uh, If this stat is right, Dave says his average never dropped below 300. Yeah. Then that that means he was hitting 300 in game one which is pretty remarkable yeah. uh, to start out that hot and to maintain it over the course of a year. Right, but if you've and, been playing winter ball in the Caribbean you know, like just, just a couple of weeks before that, it would make sense, you know? Yeah, and he, uh, you know, they won the World Series, which is a, a big, big deal in Pittsburgh, but he didn't feel like he uh, was getting his due, like you said, so he didn't go off and celebrate with his fans. Um, he kind of went off to himself uh, he was happy, but it said uh, the quote was, "I'm happy, but not but unconcerned with all the fanfare." Is what a reporter said, and he just wanted to get back home to Puerto Rico so he could uh, use his World Series bonus money to buy a house for his mother. Yeah, and he was loved there, so you know he wanted to get back to where he was um, cherished, and and he did. When he went back to Puerto Rico, he was a national hero, and. The press, like, followed him everywhere he went, and the kids loved him, and he bought a big Cadillac and mentored all the kids. So it's not like he went back like um, like Elvis and just sort of lived high on the hog. Like, he did go back a hero, but he really, really got involved with the community right away. Yeah, he kept playing. He would mentor uh, little kids who were um, learning to play sports, and that actually became one of his dreams is he wanted to um, make enough money and get big enough to build a sports complex, a sports city, or uh, Ciudad Deportes. Not bad. Um, If I can pat myself on the back for that one. Where kids could learn to um, play, but also, you know, like you didn't have much of a role model, it's the kind of place you could find a role model too. And not just play baseball, but also play maybe basketball or whatever sports um, you wanted to play. And that I think that that was... At the very least, on his mind back then, if not like one of his stated goals uh, in his life. By the time 1960 rolled around, he went back home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he got married in '64 to uh, Vera Zabala, and um, she was from his hometown there in Puerto Rico. They had three kids, and uh, he was very insistent that all his kids be born in Puerto Rico, which they were. And I think one of his sons, I think Junior, even played baseball. Uh, and then oh, yeah. ended up being an announcer. I don't think. I mean, obviously, he was. Um, he 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 never achieved like what his father did. But it's mm-hmm. pretty. I imagine tough to grow up the child of a Roberto Clemente. Sure, it's kind of like being Michael Jordan's son or whatever. You know. Yeah. His uh, his uh, so he had Roberto Jr. There's also Luis Roberto and Roberto Enrique. Those are his three sons' names. Kind of like George nice. Foreman. So <laughs> so. Um, 
by the time, so 1960s, like you said, that was his breakout year. He got married in 1964. Um, and when he was down there in Puerto Rico, one one thing I, I want to say um, I, that I saw that a lot of people kind of overlook is he played winter ball almost every year. But there was one year, I believe in 1958, where he, he didn't play winter ball and instead he enlisted in the U.S. Marines Reserves. And that's how yeah. he spent the winter. And he ended up spending the next six years as a Marine Reserve, which is something that very frequently gets overlooked, especially from Americans who really don't think of Puerto Rico as, you know, a territory or 51st state. Like he became a, a U.S. Marine while he was an up-and-coming baseball star. And then even after he was a baseball star, he remained a Marine until apparently one time, um, I, the I think the 1964 World Series um, coincided with a training exercise and the, the uh, Marines were like, you're, you're honorably discharged, go play the World Series. Yeah, but he's in the Marine Sports Hall of Fame, which I didn't even know was a thing. Oh, no, I didn't either, but it makes sense. I think he's the only player in there. <laughs> that's right. No, that's not true. Uh, surely there's other. I'll bet The Rock was in there. <laughs> Should we take a break? Probably. All right. We'll take a break and talk a little bit more about the game of Roberto Clemente right after this. Okay, Chuck. So we have already said that um, he was a five-tool player, a complete player, um, and I mean, you, you, I think, are have an understanding of what made his his play so amazing. Um, so, what made his play so amazing? I'm I'm laying <laughs> on my baseball resource. Well, I mean, he was he was built for the game. He was uh, he never li- never lifted weights in his life, but he was sort of a perfectly chiseled specimen of a baseball player. Um, very, very handsome, which has nothing to do with being a good baseball player. But doesn't hurt. Just thought I'd throw thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> it moves those cracker jacks. <laughs> it sure does. So uh, he was just very fluid. Like aside from his base running, like you mentioned earlier, it was kind of crazy. I think one sports reporter said it looked more like he was fleeing than running. Um, he right. just—you'd have to see him run. He, he just. All of his limbs were kind of just swinging, and it wasn't the most graceful run, which is weird because he was a very fluid and graceful player. Yeah. Um, and those five tools, uh, you know, he had he was known mo- most for his outfield arm, and I think he led the league in outfield assists um, five or six years in a row, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not in a row, but five or six seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was fearless. He would he would he was sort of like Willie Mays in that he would go after. Uh, these outfield hits with reckless abandon, like just run right into the wall to try and get a home run ball yeah. from going over. Uh, or, like I said, throwing out those players from right field to third base, which is just a very, very tough thing to do. And this was like before padded walls, or at the very least they didn't have them in a lot of the places he played because he would get like stitches or, you know, yeah. really mess up his shoulder or something like that. And don't forget, he's also playing through a spinal injury from that that car wreck. And yet this guy's throwing like people out at third base from right field. 
um, or running for an infield uh, grand slam. I mean, just doing crazy stuff despite these these chronic injuries that he's been accumulating. And I read somewhere that he credits his mother with his arm. He threw. He was a javelin oh, really? thrower. Yeah, he was a javelin thrower in high school, and that. Um, really kind of helps you develop all of the same muscles that you need to throw something like a baseball from right field to third sure. base or home. But he still said, yeah, I threw the javelin. That, that definitely surely helped. But I got my arm from my mom. She can throw from second base to home plate with something on it still when it gets there. Uh, <laughs> so he said he got his arm from his mom, which I thought was pretty sweet. Nice. I love it. Uh, and, you know, off the field is why he got the award named after him. Mm-hmm. He um, would mentor, uh, you know, because he was one of the first Latin American stars, he would mentor anybody that came through, especially through the Pirates organization. But he would reach out to players on other teams uh, that were from the Caribbean to try and um, pave their way a little more smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he would go to different cities, he would go to visit kids in the hospital, uh, basically every city they visited. Um, he would mentor these players. He would uh, this great, great story about the friendship he developed. This is a, a good find by Dave um, about Carol Brizovich or Brizovic. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. But um, she was a Phillies fan and a teenager and was hanging out after a game looking for autographs and saw a little crowd around Clemente but didn't really know who he was because he was playing for the Pirates. And she was taking Spanish in high school, so after she got her signature, she kind of let out a very shy muchas gracias, and he just lit up and started talking to her in Spanish, and she was was like, oh, I don't understand, so he switched to English, and they ended up talking and talking and talking in the parking lot such that uh, he and his fellow teammate that were there missed the the bus back to the airport, mm-hmm. and so her dad had to drive them, and he was a big-time Phillies fan, and right. if you know anything about Phillies fans, he was probably not happy about this, but he had to drive two Pittsburgh Pirates uh, to the airport, and he and his daughter struck up a real, genuine, lifelong friendship. Right, and like 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 she was a little sister figure to him. Uh, so was her mom as well. He kind of adopted them both as sisters uh, because he had had a sister. He had one sister out of his siblings, and she had died in an accident when he was young. And so this girl just kind of struck him in just the right way, and, and her mom as well. And so he adopted basically her whole family. Um, he had them out to, uh, I think, the next— away game in New York that they played. He invited the whole family out, put them up in the Pirates Hotel, uh, took them out to dinner afterward. And then as their friendship continued, he and his wife had uh, little Carol uh, down for Christmas in Puerto Rico one one year. So, yeah, this is like just this this random girl. He wasn't even a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Um, and he, he became basically lifelong friends with her and her family. Yeah, and I think it's really it speaks to the man he was because it was a time in America where just to hear an American girl say muchas gracias, it seems very throwaway today because so many people have learned Spanish and it's taught in all the schools. But back then it was a big deal that this little girl said two words of Spanish to him, and that was all it took. And right. um, just really, really very pure, sweet story. I love it. Yeah, and the fact that he was, you know, out there signing autographs was apparently pretty standard for him, too. He was known to be, like, the kind of guy who <clears throat> he stuck around to sign every autograph that, that was asked of him of all the kids. So he was a pretty pretty good guy. And so, like, that's what it makes it kind of rewarding, then, that he 
finally started to get the recognition that he had long sought, that he felt like he definitely deserved. And one of the other things, too, is it's easy to point to Roberto Clemente and be like, look at how egotistical the guy was. He knew he was a great player and he wanted respect for it. To him, he represented Puerto Rico um, and the Puerto Rican people. And he wanted respect not just for himself, but for them as well. Like if he could gain respect, other Puerto Rican people would gain respect by proxy. And so I think that's why that was one of the reasons why it was so important to him, not just because he wanted adulation and and respect. He wanted it for all Puerto Ricans as well. And he was like a vessel for that kind of thing. So finally, when it when it finally came around um, in 1966, uh, it, it, he he actually started to loosen up. He he became known as less moody. He bonded with his players a little more because he played all 18 seasons in the Pirates. He was a pirate through and through. Um, but he he became he was voted as the National League MVP in 1966, and apparently that was a huge turning point for him and his relationship with America and and baseball. Yeah, it was a big deal. Um... And, you know, in, in 1971 is when he went to his second World Series, uh, great, great World Series, the year I was born. I remember it well. <laughs> he was uh, – they were the underdog against the Orioles, who were a really, really good team at the time. And it went to his seventh game, just like that Yankees game did. And he got one he, – he hit in all seven games, hit safely in all seven games, which is a really huge accomplishment, mm-hmm. and hit a fourth-inning home run in, gave se- in game seven that gave them the lead – uh, basically, the go-ahead home run, and they ended up winning that World Series. He was named MVP, uh, like I said earlier, after batting four fourteen in the series and batting three forty one for the season. And this time, uh, he was really, really involved in the celebration. And uh, like you said, since '66, had warmed to uh, to baseball, to the writers a little bit more, and definitely to his teammates. Right. So it was like a really great way to end the career. And that wasn't the, the end of his career. He played another season, the 1972 season. Um, and the Pirates got all the way to the uh, NL East um, Conference. I think they made it past. Um, they made it. I don't remember who they made it past, but they faced the Reds and lost to the Reds for the NL title to move on to the World Series. But they got pretty far. It's a pretty respectable season. Um, and in that season, he got his last hit. He had 3,000 hits on the nose. He was um, only the 11th player in baseball history um, to reach that milestone. Um, And he was the first Latin American player to uh, reach that milestone, which was a huge accomplishment for him as well. But there's also something really great about it, just such an even number, 3,000 hits. Um, And he got that 3,000th hit. Uh, in the in the regular season, um, they they didn't make it to the World Series that year. But he uh, he went back down to Puerto Rico, basically immediately after the season to go play winter ball again. That's right. Uh, he, he he had the distinction of managing an All Star team down there in the Amateur Baseball World Series tournament, yeah. uh, which was held in Nicaragua that year. And he really really fell for the people of Nicaragua. And uh, very tragically, in December of that year, a big earthquake struck, uh, killed 7,000 people and left about a quarter of a million homeless. And he really wanted to get involved. His heart was broken. He had met so many great people in Nicaragua and wanted to get involved and help them out and organized, personally organized, uh, organized a relief mission there, um, raising $150,000 by going door to door to purchase food, uh, 26 tons of food and clothing and medicine. Uh, he gets the word that 
their uh, president there who was corrupt was uh, like so often happens in those situations, commandeering the supplies and they weren't getting to the people. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a plane and I'm going to fly a shipment of supplies down there myself. And so he boarded a DC-7 on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1972 to do just that, right? Yeah, he did. And it turned out, unfortunately, that that um, highly successful campaign, the drive that he he uh, spearheaded that produced 26 tons of, of supplies, well, 26 tons was way too much for the DC-7 that he charted. Um, and the engines were taxed from the outset. It took off from Puerto Rico and started flying out over the ocean, and the engines actually blew up. And um, they tried to turn the plane around while it was on fire and fly back. And they made it, I think, a, a mile from the coast before the plane broke up and fell into the ocean. And all five people on board were killed, including Roberto Clemente, who, again, uh, was overseeing personally humanitarian mission to Nicaragua to help people who were victims of an earthquake. And that's how he lost his life at age 38. Yeah, just brutal, brutal end to his story. Uh, people search for his body. Um, you know, people on the beach held daily vigils, hoping that he would somehow be found alive and rescued. Uh, but, you know, obviously nobody survived that crash. His body was never even recovered. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few months after the crash, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, one of only two times it's happened. Uh, the other was Lou Gehrig, where you don't have to wait that mandatory five-year period after yeah. the end of your career. Uh, and, in fact, I think his set the precedent now that um, if you had been uh, deceased for six months, you were eligible uh, for Hall of Fame induction, and he was just the second one. Oh, and then cool. they created that award in his honor, yeah, uh, the Clemente Award. The, the, which is for humanitarian baseball players. So that's a huge honor in and of itself. Um, I think you said that he got like 12 Golden Glove or Gold Glove Awards for fielding. His last one, or maybe his 13th, um, his wife accepted on his behalf the following April after he died. And Vera um, dedicated herself to seeing through um, his dreams and actually uh, organized and got that uh, sports city in Puerto Rico built. And it's still there today, uh, as a matter of She's fact. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah she, I mean, she, she, she really continued his work. And, um, it, you know, the, I hate that phrase, behind every great man is a great woman, because mm -hmm. it's really beside every great man is a great woman. Right. And that was definitely the case with Vera. And uh, she was a lifetime humanitarian and philanthropist as well, which is amazing. Yeah. One of the great things about Roberto Clemente is he's the kind of guy you can name a school after and feel pretty good about it. And Big as time. a result, there's in the around the world there's 40 public schools, two hospitals, and uh, more than 200 parks and ball fields named after him. And I think now there's f at least 41 public schools because this past September in Orange County, Florida, Stonewall Jackson Middle School was renamed Roberto Clemente nice. Middle School. Yep. Well, that's about. Uh, appropriate for our times. Yeah, it's pretty great. So uh, now there's 41 schools named after Roberto Clemente. So if you have a school and you're like, who can we name this after? You could do a lot worse than Roberto Clemente. And people still probably complained about that. Who cares? Who cares? Eventually, Chuck, you just have to say, I don't care that you're complaining. <laughs> yeah, Because exactly. you're in the wrong. That's right. So, uh, you got anything else about Roberto Clemente? Nothing else. Go watch YouTube videos of him. It's amazing. It, yeah, there's, yeah, just, just say, just type in like Roberto Clemente throw from right field or home run. He's had some amazing home runs. Um, yeah, 
it's just fun to watch. Plus, you're right. He he was he was pretty easy on the eyes, especially as far as baseball players go. You know, a lot of them are horribly <laughs> ugly. That's right. Ba ba boom. <laughs> Since I said that, it's time for uh, listener mail, don't you think? I think so. Uh, this is uh, called Eddie Van Halen. Uh, you know, we lost Eddie Van Halen recently, mm-hmm. and it was very tough for me. But uh, we got a an emailer from Australia. It says I jinxed it. <laughs> Hey guys, I'm writing in because I was just listening to the political polling episode and Chuck mentioned oh, he was having a break from internet news and he was only looking at something that brings me joy like old Led Zeppelin and Van Halen YouTube videos mm-hmm. cut to a couple of weeks later and the tragic news of Eddie Van Halen passing. Like it's some weird twisted way of the universe saying, oh, you found something that brings you joy in 2020? I'll fix that. <laughs> I don't believe in that stuff, but it was fairly ironic. Yeah. But truth be told, I'm can usually be found watching old Van Halen videos. So, uh, I know I'm making light of the death of someone. Oh, I don't think you really are, Matt. No. Um, that would have been a massive influences in a lot of lives. But in these times, we need to find a laugh wherever we can. Anyway, love the podcast. Can't wait for you to touch on some Australian topics. Hint, hint. Uh, all the best. And that is Matt from Melbourne. Oh, and you even said it right, Chuck. Thank God. I tried Thanks, to. Matt. Yeah, I'm sure Jimmy Page is like, Chuck, stop watching videos of me, okay? (laughs) Well, if you want to be like Matt from Melbourne, who is awesome just for being from Melbourne, because we've been to Melbourne, and Melbourne is a pretty great place. um, Wonderful. You you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.